Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, before we get to the part before the part of the podcast, and by the way, that podcast coming up is the first of our three-show epic, which is a blowout season finale. I got to let you know something. Literally as we finished recording our epic three-hour show yesterday, the news broke on the AP about sexual allegations against Placido Domingo. Needless to say, it's a huge story. We're watching it closely at Opera Box War, and we will likely do a deep dive into that at the beginning of Season 5 when the show returns on Monday, September 9th. It's on our radar. It's on your radar, too, I know. We're going to be following that story closely just to see how everything turns out. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, plus our guest co-host, conductor Anthony Barese. All right, tonight, it is a three-hour epic season finale for those of you listening to our show live we're on the air from now all the way till 10 p.m central for our podcast listeners you're going to get this marathon show split up into three one hour releases on august 13 20 and 27 there's a ton to talk about tonight including chalk talk segments about protests at indiana university's jacobs school of music and about why opera composers and librettists are turning to movies for plot lines. During Inside the Huddle, I chat with soprano and director Patricia Reset. Oliver interviews American soprano Marisol Montalvo. Conductor Anthony Barese inducts a true rarity into the OBS Hall of Fame. Our team each confesses about one production they just have to see in the upcoming season. Camacho and Cummings face off in a brutal TKO match featuring a mad scene. You're going to get all your opera headlines in the two-minute drill. The show is absolutely loaded as we go out with a bang here in early August. Of course, you get to call us on air. You get to get your voice heard whenever you want. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news on what we're talking about, 847-866-9687. Anthony from the Bronx called in last week. This week, it's your turn, 847-866-WNUR, or just go ahead, tweet us at Opera Box Score. Post on our Facebook page, Oliver Camacho over there in studio two, sharing a mic with Tobias Wright. No, with Matt Cummings. So for those people listening to the podcast today, um, are they going to get all that stuff in today's podcast? They're going to get just a fraction of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is called so what, is, what is this show then? This show specifically is. What is today? Today. <laughs> today is Monday, August twelfth. Today we is are already off things. to a great start on okay. this three-hour. Oliver like didn't. Here. Oliver didn't read his emails. No, I. I read. I'm just trying to clarify for the audience who thinks that this podcast is three hours long, even though they're looking at their podcast even though it said at least it's fifty-nine minutes. So what? Exactly. What the? F, oh, that's you know? good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. What, what they Keep get guessing. tonight? You're, you're still yeah. only getting an hour. This is why okay. you need to listen to the show live. Wnur.org/popup. Okay, what you get tonight in your podcast is you get. You get the um, that's okay. We'll they'll figure it out once they hear about it. Indiana. So, you get Patricia Reset 
inside the huddle and you get the two minute drill. That's nice. it's oh, a pretty good first classic. hour. That's a good classic yeah. lineup. That's real solid. Okay, so real that's Oliver. Content. We got Tobias. We got Matt. I don't have nearly there. as much to complain about as Oliver. Does <laughs> <laughs> anyone ever really? The one person who's not complaining right now is Anthony Barresi. Oh, Thank you for not. I'll, I'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> By the time hour three rolls around, Anthony's going to be on the floor. <laughs> Uh, Bears camp has finally started. That means football is coming back, and mm. this miserable summer of nothing but baseball is almost over. And Simone Biles shattering records like the Banff she is. And oh, Formula yeah. One. Yeah, Hello, she touched anybody? the moon yeah. yesterday. And that. None of us, nobody, none nobody? of us have ever survived a go kart crash quite like you have, Maestro Bray. Don't make me come over there. <laughs> <laughs> crazy, crazy man. This is gonna be an awesome show. Stick around. Chalk talk. On Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Three hour epic show of America's Talk and one radio show podcast. about opera. <laughs> or three one hour podcasts. Yeah, that's how to do it. Story yeah, on yeah. the Opera Wire yeah, website uh, yeah, from just four days ago, actually. This link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Publishes a letter that was submitted from a member of the student body to the higher-ups at the Jacobs School of Music at IU. Uh, it was submitted to OperaWire anonymously. Oh. Um, and it signed the undergraduate student population of the Jacobs School of Music. That's a lot of people. I need one of my guys right now to raise their hand and to summarize this letter and to summarize this story. Who is raising their hand? Matt Cummings touching his nose. Yeah, that's the opposite I of raising your like hand. like you the raised your home. hand. Um, okay, okay, I'll jump in. Um, I don't know where to start. It's a pretty lengthy letter, uh, but we'll just start with the beginning because I think that's important to set the premise. It has come to the attention of the undergraduate student population. Don't read it. Oh, I don't know. Summarize they're mad that they're it. doing Parsifal and that they're hiring lead singers. And that they're three hours. Let him. And yeah, we got three hours. And they're reducing the season from four to six. But now that I've said all of that, six that from six to four. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> you're right, Matt. Oh, just bored. read the thing. Okay, thanks. Man, shut up, Anthony. Okay, uh, it has come to the attention of the... Un- it's just going to take me a second to read. We could have been done with this already, but we're still going. Uh, it has come to the attention of the undergraduate student population that, for the 2019-2020 season, IUOBT has made... What does that stand for? Indiana, Indiana University, University Opera and Ballet Theater. Opera, okay, great. Um, has made the decision to present an abridged season, reducing the total number of productions staged from the standard six operas down to four. Additionally, it has been rumored that the abridged four-production schedule may be a permanent change to the performance practice of the Jacobs School That's of Music. That's true. Regardless of the internal and external factors uh, driving this decision, the students would like to express their disappointment with the upcoming production schedule. It is our belief that this decision is not only detrimental to our education, but may also jeopardize the future of the Jacobs School of Music as a premier opera training program. Gentlemen, discuss. Well, I think that there's certainly uh, when I first, you know, just like just clicked it, just clicked the headline. I, I was like, students performing Parsifal? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? Just because you know, uh, late Wagner is not exactly your average uh, good training, unless you're Michelle DeYoung, of course. So. <laughs> the only exception. Well, Jake is in your average school of music, either. Right, exactly. Uh, but this is this is very much something that I, I kind of see uh, what the uh, what they're complaining about, at least as far as the choice of Parsifal is concerned. Where does it say that in the letter? It talks about that. It, it does. Yes, it. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, I believe uh, the student body. I'm reading from the letter now has expressed reservations regarding the choice of operas uh, for the 2019-2020 season. In addition to the reduction of productions presented, um, they have uh, elected to present Parsifal, an opera which is not suited for student voices. And they say that the Jacobs School of Music is first and foremost an educational institution, not a professional opera company. Uh, And uh, they go on to say that, you know, giving students experience uh, in, uh, in singing is an important part of the program, which, you know, is pretty true, which is why you have the the weird sort of one-two punch of reducing the season, reducing the amount of operas that these students can you know try, and basically counting every student out from one of those four now. Exactly, because what what is a student going to sing in Parsifal? Flower maidens. Flower maidens. Yeah. Is that 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 that's it. Yeah, you know that they're not going to sing. You could put two baritones together to sing on four tusks at the same time. Just just splice them together to make one super student baritone, uh, which I believe is the way. But I I do think it 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 sort of one of the unspoken things. Well, two things. One is that the Jacobs School of Music has a tradition of doing Parsifal. They did it for for many years, and it was like an Easter tradition. 
but this this sort of smells like uh, like a faculty vanity project. Mm. The so last level. time they did one of those annual productions was in 1976. Okay, right, but but they did for many years before. Uh, yeah, from before. 49 to 76. Yeah, so there were, there was a big so that so, uh, but I think you could make the I think it's a, a solid argument to say this is not for student voices. Period. You know, right. full stop. But I think you can make a very solid argument that it's Jacob's School of Music is not just it's not the opera, right? It's it's the School of Music and which has orchestras and there really is no argument to be made against a student orchestra learning a work like Parsifal which is incredibly sophisticated and and you know maybe divorcing it from the 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 fa- if, if you mentally divorcing it from the fact that it's part of the opera department it is an incredible opportunity for the orchestra musicians to to play and learn a real masterwork and something that really changed the way that the orchestra's the orchestration fine, was done fine fine but orchestra musicians have many opportunities to perform in symphony not wagner they no, have, but I'm saying, but they could do Wagner in a symphonic concert or a concerto competition. Not, like, not an entire Parsifal. I mean, you can't you can't say that's the same. I mean, I I do agree with the with the vocal aspect, absolutely. But 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 it, that's not it's it's not just about that though. That's, that that is definitely happening at the expense of the students. Yes, absolutely. Right. Especially vocally, especially well, in combination with the reduction of the sure. season, which I believe Toby, however, had that points about. Oh, well, uh, I to me it's just like, well, welcome to the opera world. I mean, these guys are like, oh, no, a reduced season. And I'm like, yeah, no crap. Yeah. Go look at the the best opera companies in the world. What are they doing? But they're Redu- paying, no, they're reducing seasons. But these kids are this paying is, 50 grand a year to be there. No, That's not none exactly of them the are paying full cost. And if they are, they're idiots. I'm just saying, like, if Ooh. you... Sh- the, these, are the un- these are the undergraduate students. But the point that I'm trying to make... But the undergraduate students wouldn't be in the, in the main stage operas anyway, really. Right. They're not the ones singing leads in these operas. They're looking for performance opportunity and stage time, which I totally get. But the argument is flawed because if you look at the economic situation that is the opera business this is what it is yeah but that it is reduced opportunities it is a saturated market and it is and it is companies cutting costs but no it's not a separate issue it is opera but it is opera period that this is what happens tobias that totally puts the administration (laughs) of the school off the hook they chose to do parsifal no one is holding a gun to their head saying you must do parsifal this year okay or you will be shut down so would you agree though that if they had reduced it to four performances, Parsifal wasn't one. Do you think this letter would still be written? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a. Don't you? I mean. Yeah. I, right. So, but like, I guess still to my point, like that's what is happening in the opera world. Performance opportunities are shrinking. the 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 market is saturated with too many singers looking for too few opportunities. But this is that's a conservatory. This is, like, this is where people are trying to get right. training, not trying to get real life experience of what it's <laughs> like to be. Well, this like, is their real life experience. No, this we're not. This is school. This is school. This is, this school. <laughs> this is not supposed to be real life. This is their wake up call. Let them lose their innocence once it's they get out into the real world of bootstrappy <laughs> opera. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Tobias is going to enter the the cottage industry of writing millennial think pieces about Gen Z <laughs> being entitled to participation opera. You snowflakes aren't going to be singing opera. <laughs> that's like exactly how I feel. <laughs> so, can for, I, can what I, about I, people who aren't embittered former singers? Just spend less time writing this stupid letter and learn some languages. It like took that's a lot what of I have time to write that letter. Yeah, yeah. they wasted a year probably writing that. That's letter. what I'm saying. They could have learned. They could have learned like 14 roles and two languages. And all in the, the time good it would have done them if they had no. <laughs> Stage yeah, you're time right. to perform them. <laughs> uh, Mike's kind of question with this is uh, not so much uh, the choice of Parsifal and and the reduction of seasons. M- my question is, uh, I mean, obviously in like a, a normal operatic setting, Parsifal is going to be a, a, a really expensive piece oh, yeah. to put on. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how. What what would the cost be of doing Parsifal in a in a in a student setting? Like, like if they were like, okay, we're not going to do Parsifal, um, but we still can't up the season to six because we, we uh, or, or would they? Because would Parsifal just be that expensive? Parsifal, you could be pretty, um, you could be pretty abstract with, you know, like true. It's, it's not like a Meyerbeer opera which you would need like the bells and the whistles and stuff. Like you could, you can do like you look at Bayreuth productions of Parsifal, you know, going back to the last. Fifty years or so. Sure, sure. They're, they're just like lights, you know, or fog. Like you can do or almost even that Met pro- production exactly. currently. That's just like a big pool of blood. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that that part. Of it, it just comes down to like I think a philosophical thing, but I just don't know. It, it's so obviously faculty members that want to sing this, and and they're just scrapping an entire student production so they can. They're actually scrapping three student productions yeah. for one parcel. Well, do we know? Okay, that's, so that's a permanent change, though. Is, I yeah, I was going to say, is that yeah, just for it, this that's year? What, that's, yeah. How do you yeah. know that's a permanent change? Well, 
the internet told me. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I believe it was on the internet. I think it was. I think it was, they did come out afterwards and sort of and say that. I mean, believe me, there is no such thing as oh, just this season we're gonna we're gonna go down to four. <laughs> no, you would. Yeah, you would never add numbers again. Right. Just Why would you ever go we're back to close six? New York City off? Right. <laughs> but I do. I do think that there's an interesting movie pass is gonna close for a little while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think that there's a, there's a question of is it really Parsifal's fault or is this a side problem and just poor timing and adding Parsifal. You know what I mean? I, well, I mean, there's probably years that go into planning these types of things. Sure. I think that there was definitely a lack of foresight in the decision to both reduce the season and do Parsifal. Absolutely. Right, but like in the 40s and the 70s, you know, they weren't like taking their quill pen out and writing a <laughs> letter to the no, exa- exactly, but look, the administrators sat <laughs> around the table and out loud, what <laughs> they said was, we're going to do all these things at the same time. We're going to cut down the season, right. and we're going to reduce the amount of opportunities our students have to gain vital skills in acting. Yeah. And they I thought just, that those optics were good. I just have a serious question here. Matt, are we still friends after sparring there? <laughs> we'll see. Okay, great. <laughs> it was really intense, folks. Like, like hair was he flying. Said, he said, Tobias. I full-named him, it's true. <laughs> he full-named me. It was like, this I've is this, this uh, season four finale three-parter that we got going on right now is already the most intense show we've ever Whoa. done. The cliffhanger Whoa. is, will our friendship survive? Tune in in season out. five to find out. I, I just thought it was bizarre. This is in the opening paragraph of the letter that based, excuse me, the second paragraph of the letter that says, that Jacobs offers only one specialized acting class for opera students that and no acting requirement for any degree program within yeah, the program. They don't offer any language, system. as far as I know. Like I, To I, undergrads? They offer diction. Well, but I, I'm sure that it's, the a, university it's, resources. Yeah, it's a requirement I, for them to take a language course probably through another department. I mean, that was part of my undergraduate degree, and I didn't go to IU. But like I had to take German through the German. Did you have to take German or German diction? No, I had to take a full year of German language wow. and Italian language. Yeah, I think I think I had to take two. I was required to take two years of any language, but it was my choice. Please tell me that both of you, Tobias and Matt, took more than one class in acting. Oh, uh, oh I, yeah, I did acting. God, I feel like I did it every quarter I that I was in university for my undergrad, and I was not required to take an acting class. That's not only nice. are you not required, it's almost impossible to take one as as an elective. They're, they're Where so, did you go? At Northwestern also. Oh, okay. There's so much competition for those spots from the theater department. I feel like I did home. acting. I guess it wasn't acting. You, do, you I did get some acting through Opera Workshop, yeah. but that yeah, is Yeah, through really Opera Workshop. My only acting training in Northwestern came through Opera Workshop. So. That's something that, that's hmm. really... Uh, this, I, this is not just a problem. I, d- I did the... take classes through the theater department, not the music school in my undergrad. But those were electives. That's those, Kansas. Right. Kansas. Yeah. Kansas. It's still a good school. We're going to get a yeah. acting <laughs> lack of, But a lack of acting training I mean. in the conservatory system is like a, an epidemic. Criminal. Yeah, because yeah. uh, more and more, it's becoming more and more important to be a really good actor on stage. The, the park and bark days are over. They've, they've been done for at least 20 years, you know, depending on who you ask. And and to to put someone out in the world, you know, Toby, you're talking about people not being pre- prepared for the real world. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you go out there and you can't act, that's going to be a huge problem for you as an opera singer in the current sort of market of uh, of opera. You 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 have to you have to be able to give a good convincing performance. In in many in many companies in many places, that's actually more important than the singing. And uh, <laughs> and I would say in many operas it, they're almost written that way. I mean, well, you, you it's, don't need it's like rarely part of the curriculum. That, that's that's something that I think is yeah. That so might that, be I mean, that is that is a surprising itself. thing. So maybe in lieu of their two operas, they can add some acting classes. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, we'll we're going to see if the administration decides to respond to this. Oh, not. they're not going to. Don't respond. don't hold your don't hold your breath. Probably tweet at IU. Uh, <laughs> yes, Patricia Reset is a brilliant soprano, but I wanted to talk to her about directing. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. 
with an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or are proposed to the bearer hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Hey, it's Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Got a great show for you tonight. It's our three-hour epic season finale. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and our guest co-host, conductor Anthony Bereze. So Patricia Reset has been heralded as a preeminent singing actress of our time. She's built and sustained an evolving career in the most acclaimed opera houses and concert stages of the world for over 30 years. And she continues not only to sustain her passion for this art form, but also expand it into broader arenas as both a stage director and a master teacher. I met Patricia Rossette last summer at Opera Theater of St. Louis, right around the time of her directing Thank you, Tobias. Directing debut, which was Verdi's La Traviata. And ever since then, I've wanted to talk to her about not singing, but directing. And so I got a chance to get her on the phone last week. And I started by asking Pat why, at this point in her opera career, and this show, Traviata, and this company, Opera Theater of St. Louis, why were all these things the perfect combination for her to start directing. Well, Jim Robinson had had approached me since at least two years before then, and uh, just sort of proposed the idea. He said, "Hey, what do you think about directing?" And it's something I had thought about many, many times over the years. So I immediately, you know, jumped on board and said, "I think it's a great idea. I would love it." And then we started discussing various repertoire, and um, and and. You know, obviously, this, they have to plan their season accordingly, and this this was the piece that I thought would be a really good um, initial endeavor in terms of my directing, um, for many reasons. Partially because I, you know, did the role a hundred times probably, and just was very familiar with it. But also had a had an idea of of how I wanted to present it um, visually and interpretively. So. Um, so I was very excited to have the chance, and I I'll, also I have I I really I really love that theater because it's so intimate, so it gives an opportunity for, um, with as many challenges as that, that theater has, you know you don't have a curtain, you don't have there's not a ton of fly space, but it has an intimacy that I think is really valuable, especially for younger singers and connecting with the audience. You you say you'd thought about directing many times over the course of your active singing career. What is it? about directing that is so attractive to you? Well, you know, I've, one could have accused me um, throughout my career of always possessing an opinion about matters that happen on stage that weren't directly within my purview as the leading lady or whatever. <laughs> I'd always have an aesthetic opinion about various and sundry things, whether or not I shared them. So it's, what's, what's nice is I, I not only um, have license and permission to voice that opinion and, and, and that aesthetic, but I also have the, um, it, it's, I, I, it's my job to do so as director. And so to, to have that sort of creative input in the, the entirety of the story um, for in, in how that 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 will be presented um, is is really it's it's a, such a pleasure for me. It feels like a relief. Like I ha ah, finally I can I can say my piece and 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 how I think it ought to go. So um, that's that's you know that's something that I've that I've pretty much um, uh, I don't want to say I struggled with it, but it was you know it's not my place to say. Well, I really think you know visually this room should be set up like this, blah blah blah. blah. But I, I'd have those opinions, and now um, they're uh, you know uh, uh, very useful for me. Also, I'm I'm a time management geek. I, I I really do schedule things to the minute, and 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 I'm able to understand the timing of putting a project together um, just naturally, um, and I'm also able to um, really comprehend the musical timing that one must adhere to as a director. So um, my various set of skills 
have 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 functioned well for um, what the task is. When it came to working with the singers, specifically on that Traviata, what was something that you've brought from your own work, your own process as a singer, and you infused in your directing work and your acting work with those artists? Well, you know, the the cynical um, opinion, I think, about when, when one discusses singers becoming directors not many have, but is, is especially sopranos for some reason, is that, you know, it's going to be a, a one-eye festival. Well, when I, when I sang this, I did it like this. And, and that was something that was so very important to me not to be the case in any way, shape, or form, because for me, it's completely and utterly irrelevant what I did when I did the role. What I did with my, my cast is I treated them and interacted with them and gave them information as a director um, in a way that I appreciate as a performer. So I want to help them find their interpretation, their voice. Mind you, keeping within the sort of total framework of what the piece is and the vision I have for it. But I want them to invest themselves in it. That, to me, is artistry. The other stuff is mimicry. So um, I, I, I really just focused on that and the end result is 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 positive in in several ways and they feel engaged they feel empowered um they feel ignited about their art form and their participation in it and then i end up as a director with invested performances from everybody even the chorus particularly loved the experience because i wanted them to have have an experience where their their creativity got a chance to shine. So um, that that that's that's that is my approach. So you mentioned the the framework of this particular production. What, what was the first step in your process of conceptualizing it? What was your way into it, and how you decided to come up with your point of view on Traviata? Well, I really thought of, you know, I, I of course I thought of the the, the literary source, the Damo Camellia, and I thought how that um, that can play into the story. I like visual imagery. I like the motif of a visual happening um, in a piece. So our our back wall wasn't a huge camellia with you know an opening in the middle where. Um, it could be service entrance and exit, but also as a focal point uh, for Violetta at the very beginning in the overture. Um, my process was sort of figuring out the visual in that regard, and 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 you know allowing allowing the physical space to be free enough where the artist could tell the story. I mean, I did it in the 1930s and um, for a variety of reasons, but I, I, the story, um, interpretively speaking, was told um, as is, if you will, and, and I thought that there was a very powerful combination. I also, I really like to try and, as much as possible, visually display somehow the sort of psychological um, occurrences or whatever in, in the in the mind of in this case Violetta and, and sort of refer to that as much as possible and sort of you know it whether everyone gets it is not important to me um, because I think I think spelling things out too much in theater um, leaves an audience less engaged than if we allow them to think and assess so my approach was first visually and then and then it got more and more specific in a variety um, of areas. And in the design process, you're working with a design team, of course. What was what was something magical and something special about that specific relationship between you and your designers and coming up with this visual landscape? Well, it is it is kind of special in that uh, you know you, you you have your initial meetings and you sit and you discuss you sort of brainstorm ideas i mean i always come to the table with a specific idea that i want i want us to anchor um to anchor us in our in our storytelling and so i 
as I said, the, the camellia was that. And then we sort of just bat ideas around, and I, I sort of do a lot of brainstorming verbally and, you know, just sort of we bat, yeah, we just bat ideas around and, and, and discuss things, and then things, what's, what's really neat is watching and experiencing things take form. And, you know, so, so many of these conversations um, at some point have to happen over the phone, so it's very interesting to, to sometimes it's not at all what I meant, but what the designer has come up with is, is perhaps maybe more interesting, but it was through a misunderstanding of what I meant. So it's, it's a very, it's a truly richly creative process from the very beginning. It's very, very true how all those misunderstandings can sometimes lead to the best ideas. Yeah, and I feel that way also in staging. If there's an argument, I don't mean like a fight, I mean like an argument, as in the French use of the world, is a word of discussion, a discussion that happens and there are disagreements. Ultimately, the job is we have to resolve them, number one, and almost always that happens. And, and, and those disagreements can end up giving way to a, a better result. So I think that's, that's kind of an interesting um, way of, about it, too. It's a very organic uh, process. You know, I love to cook. So it's, it's, it's really all the processes of, of cooking an intricate, delicious meal. And it's, 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 sort of, it's sort of the same thing, you know, how you, how you chop things, you know, how you, how you do your prep work and how you, the order in which you, you put the, 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 the ingredients together. That's very much um, my feeling when I'm directing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're listening to Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here talking with soprano and director Patricia Reset. Coming up in April 2020 at Dallas Opera, you're directing one half of a double bill. That's Poulenc's La Voix Humaine, along with uh, Stravinsky's Pulcinella, directed by Candice Evans. And am I right that you're also singing in Voix Humaine? <laughs> yes, so I'm sure to get along with the director. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. I mean, that you know, I, I always envy uh, film stars that are able to direct and star in their in their in their films because obviously it's captured by the camera, and then they can go back and edit or or whatever. So um, you know, doing this in, in in a piece where I I I you know there are other cast members and what whatnot, I think would be a bit questionable, but when it was presented, the idea that I would direct and sing this, it makes total sense, because really, it, my experience of doing this piece, performing La Voix Humaine, um, it's such a, it has to be completely, utterly collaborative with the director. You're, you're sort of co-directing it anyway, so um, this is something that I'm really looking forward to, and again, I get to approach it um, with a, a visual first, and then I, I can plug it in. I mean, that's a piece that is, in my opinion, you know, such a journey into the psychological state of this, of this woman that um, there are a lot of possibilities where it could, it could make sense. Where are you in your conceptual process of the piece? Um, Give us a window. Into, are you, are you in panic stage I, yet? No, not at all. Not at all. I've, I've had many several conversations and um, met with head of production. Uh, I don't want to give anything away yet until it's absolutely confirmed, if you don't mind, but you know, they're going to build a piece that'll, that'll make sense in terms of what I want. And um, no, no, no panic at all. Everything's actually um, in, a, in a good place in terms of that. Doing, directing Susanna in uh, Opera Theatre St. Louis. I'm really excited about that as well. And that's been something, you know, that it takes, it, takes a considerable amount of time with your design team to decide how you want to proceed. And, um, and in this project, I'm using Andrew Boyce, um, who's a very talented designer, and we, we're coming up with our, our, our concept for this. Um, well, we, we've come up with the concept, and we've already presented it, and everyone seems to be thrilled. So, um, you know, Susanna's taken the story has is taken from the apocrypha the book of daniel um and in that if you read it the idea of this tree is very um important in in terms of the story and how she is actually ultimately vindicated and so we t we took that image and have made that a prominent 
prominent uh, aspect of the the look. And um, you know, Susanna has challenges because there are a lot of shifts between indoor and outdoor with very little time. Um, even if we did have a curtain, it would be difficult, but we don't have a scrim or anything like that. So that's been the the challenge we've had in, in creating that space, and I think we've succeeded in doing that, and I think it'll it'll be an interesting, unique, um, unique take on this on this you know story, this this wonderful piece of Americana. So interesting. Earlier on, you talked about how like one vital thing in directing, of course, is organization and the schedule. In my opinion, transitions, how we get from one scene to another scene, like uh, operas live in transition more in a way than they live in scene. How, what's, yeah. what's the plan on Susanna to, to tackle those transitions again without giving too much away or how like philosophically right. do you approach transition? Right. I know that for me, well, um, first of all, the fact that I'm a musician um, and that I, I, I'm able to adhere to the blueprint, which is the score, which is in charge of the timing, you know, as opposed to a, a straight play, as it were, where you have some control over that timing. So um, that, that's a huge asset because I've worked with directors that aren't musical and, and, you know, then we're in tech rehearsals and suddenly find out, oh, no. We don't have enough time to do this, or we have way too much music for what we, you know, what we planned. That that's not something that burdens me, or in any way. So the transition, for, for example, I'm going to brag. The transition I had between Act Two, Scene One, Act Two, Scene Two, and Traviata, it is anywhere, depending on tempo, between 15 and 19 seconds, and it's a massive change from the country to Flora's party. So it's a massive change. And so um, uh, I was able to do it. It was a, it, I was able to achieve it in an integrated, non-stopping-the-show kind of way, which, which I felt very proud of. That's, that's a Guinness um, Book of World Records number, probably. I think we've all sat through interminable changes with the curtain yeah, down and, and the lights at half. There was no pause in the music. There was nothing. And it, 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 everything happened in time. I mean, we, we, we had to be very intricate about how things rolled on and off and what, what happened. But my philosophy is I don't want to see the action stop for something perfunctory and mundane like a scene change. I want, if it's going to have to be, you know, visual, I want it integrated into the action from the scene it came from and the scene it goes into. So that, that, is, that is the way I like to... Um, have these happen, and I think I think we um, I think we succeeded um, in Susanna, which actually is even more of a challenge because they're, so, they're they're short scenes and short scene changes. <laughs> so you know we, we we kept that in mind in terms of the design of the space. At the beginning of August, you joined Opera Theater of St. Louis as the artistic director of the Young Artists Programs. So what is like the first thing on your to do list? Um, well, uh, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm going, you know, on the audition tour and because the artists have not, the young artists have not yet been chosen for the next season. So that's, that's the first on the to-do list. In my opinion, you know, having that I was, I went through the Marilla and Adler Fellowship Program as a young artist, um, in the late 80s, 80, 89 and 90, and, um, found that so incredibly valuable but I also sent in, you know, during my career, I've, I've had the chance to teach and work with young artists along the way. I teach a seminar called Integrative Artistry, which is, well, if you've been to a master class, it's like that, except extended over a week in, in, in a, in, with solo sessions and also group sessions. My vision is to integrate the demands of what it is to be a performer, and I think the priority, and it is necessary, has been, you know, musical preparation and, and command of the vocal technique, which, which must continue and, and, and must um, be paid attention to. But what I feel is falling short is the interpretive prowess that is not being nurtured and, and curated and fostered. And that is what I wish. I, I, I want to, um, the 
young artists that exit our program, whether it's after the first year, the second year, or the third year, I, I want them to be, be able to present themselves with all the musical and vocal requirements in place, but also to have an, an idea of their interpretive voice, their own true artistic voice. Because whether we recognize it or not, that's what moves us, is that unique, that unique quality. And I don't just mean vocal color. I mean that, that unique interpretive quality. That's what moves us as an audience. And I think that's what propels this art form. So my, my mission is to make sure that the, these, these things are, are, are more balanced in terms of the training and the preparation. Love White You Men is in Dallas in April. Carlo Floyd's Susanna is at Opera Theater of St. Louis next summer. Patricia Reset, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about not singing but directing. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. I loved talking on the phone to Patricia Reset. Anthony, we were talking about other singers who have come into directing. And as Patricia said, the list is pretty short. Yeah, the, the list of really famous and impressive singers uh, that have become directors, uh, the two that came to my mind uh, were Scotto and uh, Malfitano. Hmm. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm sure Oscar could help me out here. Oscar can, because that's not his name. <laughs> Oliver. <laughs> oh, my God. Why did I call you Oscar? Who is you're Oscar? racist. I know your name is Oliver. This is... It's it Opera happens. Box Score. I'm going to blame the gummy bears. On <laughs> WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, we are in the midst of our three-hour epic season finale. All right, up next, two-minute drill. One sexual assault case in Opera Land is apparently settled. Another one apparently gets even worse. That is all next. Stick around. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. One of the most potentially explosive Me Too situations in the classical music sphere has been quietly shut down. The Metropolitan Opera and its former music director, James Levine, have reached a settlement in competing court claims that have been filed in the New York State Supreme Court. NPR made a public records request of the University of Michigan to learn more about the circumstances and the timeline of the steps that the university took to fire countertenor David Daniels back in April. Documents provided by the university in response reveal specific disturbing allegations against the singer. Jane Glover will continue to lead the music of the Baroque through the ensemble's 50th anniversary season and three years beyond. MOB announced that it's extended Glover's contracts as music director through 22-23. That will make the 70-year-old British conductor, who took over at MOB in 2002, the longest tenured current leader of a Chicago classical organization. The American Prize in the Performing Arts has announced the winners and of its uh, awards given to productions and opera performance in 2018-2019. This cycle's recipients are in Chicago, Cincinnati, Hawaii, and Pittsburgh. A colorful 75-minute adaptation of Meisterzinger by Wagner was presented by the Bayreuth Festival as this year's edition of Wagner for Kinder, an ongoing series of productions of the composer's operas designed for audiences between the ages of 8 and 12. Notorious classical music website Slip Disc writes that, quote, we are reliably informed that staff at English National Opera can no longer access the Slip Disc website on their work computers. 
Sliptus adds that this is a usually a sign of panic and imminent regime change. On this day, the premiere of Alciera by Giuseppe Verdi at the Teatro San Carlo in Naples. That was in 1845. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM, the three-hour season finale epic. George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and our guest co-host... Say Oliver's name just a couple more times. So Anthony. Oscar Marvin Tony over here. <laughs> Oscar Meyer Wiener. Uh, uh, we hey, wait, wait, yeah. wait. Wait, were we gonna, can I just say I th- something? I think we have the same idea. Wagner for Kinder, those kids at IU can shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I was going to say, why don't they just do Wagner for Kinder at IU? <laughs> more opportunities. <laughs> Probably a smaller house. And, you know, and kid, piano kids love is Meisterzingers. I mean, they... <laughs> Meisterzinger is such a kid-friendly. They especially <laughs> love the rant about German nationalism. Foreign people, and yeah. Right, so, Bereza, you don't like the idea. You don't like the idea of a seventy-five-minute uh, Meisterzinger. I love the idea of a Wagner for Kinder. I, do, I just don't think Meisterzinger is the point. It you is want to do. like it literally be the <laughs> yeah, or, or you know, Rheingold or something. Or yeah, yeah, I was thinking Rheingold. Fa- Fairy tale. Happy land. ending. Valhalla. It, it is literally the Valhalla weirdest, uh, the weirdest choice of the entire Wagner canon, except maybe Tristan and Isolde. That might be weird <laughs> for, for, for kids. kids. Would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but Tristan and Isolde love each other very much. <laughs> That's the strangest thing you've ever said, Weston. You've said some really strange crap in your time. <laughs> I, I'm all about that. Yeah, Weston, did you actually come up with this Wagner for Kinder? Uh, I, I did find this story. Actually, no, I didn't even find this story. This story was literally sent to me by a friend who said, this made me think of you, and I input it into the document. Yeah. So, like, yeah, that's well, That that's was better fair. than uh, him sending you the David Daniel story and saying Ooh. the same Ooh. thing. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that was a rough trip of George. Or that was worse or better than, I'm just going to read some of the things David Daniels did, and then we can say whether or not you inputting that into the document was better. Yeah, let's uh, not read those okay. things. Okay, darn. <laughs> the link is on our website. If you want to read for yourself, you yeah, can. There, there, it, 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 You're uh, right, there are rules that we... So that's how bad it is. We can't say certain things yeah. on the air. No, there's none of it is, like, it's explicit. A, yeah. It, but it, but just, like, the idea of some of these things is, is shocking. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, well, it's not shocking considering... The how the David Daniels story has played out over the past. But even having time. followed that story, like reading all of it in a row, kind of hits yeah. you again. Reading reading everything that like is allegedly happened, um, and and that he's being accused of, and then reading the paragraph that says the university also points out that at all times during these alleged episodes, Professor Daniels exercised potential or actual academic supervisory authority over some or all of the students, like <sighs> the entire time. Also, that he misled the entire. Uh, investigation i don't know yeah I remember mean, when we did this when we broke this news and oliver was like he didn't do it i didn't say he didn't do it i just said that like <laughs> oliver what? didn't say no, that no 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 i'm, I know. I'm sorry i'm, I'm sorry i love you i already apologize for that i'm oscar wor- said that <laughs> that was oscar <laughs> nothing to do with oliver no, at all no i'm i'm the so king of putting my, fo- my foot in the mouth on this show so i can't say anything but. Uh, i mean i've been in this podcasting business for since before you were born and so i've said some of the stupidest things on there i will never be able to run for president yeah i mean there's not much more to add it's basically what you would what you expect the link will be on our website um i did think it was interesting that they settled with that the met settled yes i think that's the more interesting story agreed uh that that's always i mean the reasons for settling a case like this are so many and I'm inclined to think it was just at the point where they didn't want to get They wanted to go go away. Right, exactly. Um, Who, who's they, Anthony? The, the Met. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I think that it was the ball was really kind of always in uh, the Mets' court here, I think. Uh, I think they were definitely initially uh, very much of the, of the opinion that if they didn't act strongly to distance themselves from James the Line, they would... They would they felt like they would fall. They apart. were going to get dragged under. Yeah, and I think that's probably fair to a certain extent uh, because James Levine was the, the, the. I mean, he was the yeah, head. It's hard to get more scandalous the, than that. Exactly, for for many many uh, decades, uh, and so uh, and so I think maybe we've we've finally gotten to the point where they're far enough away in time that they can finally be like settling out of court is probably the way 
to go. And also the uh, the the amount the, the of the countersuits was was so high. I, I can imagine that it would probably like if for some reason given, the Met lost. Like given how long these these allegations have been going on, it's doubtful that the Met would have come up looking really great if this yeah. had gone public. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> This is what disgusted me. So this is from the article. It's on our website, operaboxscore.com. That's what you're listening to on WNUR. Levine's legal team argued, quote, there was nothing in his contract with the Met that stipulated any behavioral standards for the conductor. Like, what kind of lawyers are at work? They're like, well, hey. I mean, I mean it didn't say he didn't have Let's to. Let's good lawyers, but not good not good, I, not good people. Maestro Bereza, can I ask you, is that type of language in your contracts? No, it's pretty clear that, you know, if, you know, that, well, I mean, I have a very different contract than James Levine. <laughs> <laughs> but most, most conductors, most music directors have, most, you know, p- employees have an inc- uh, in their contract that they can fire you without cause at any time. I mean, so right. I don't, I, that's my contract, so I could, you know, I could look funny and they could, they could fire me. Yeah, but and then of course there's a certain point where just like morally speaking, it's like yeah, it might not have been specified, but but still, you know, the but right. still defense, the famous one we all know and love. Um, but I kind of want to move along from uh, do it all this nasty stuff and get, focus on a little bit of good news because uh, George, you were a little inspecific about one of those uh, those uh, those prizes. Listen, man, you know I don't hype my own stuff <laughs> on this show, so but you guys want to hype it? You it's can not hype you it. hyping it. This is actually news. Yeah, this is actually news. This is actually news. This is George news. Uh, so uh, there were many winners. There were many winners, but one of them was the <laughs> let's, first. Let's, place. let's go backwards. This yes, is the yes, American Prize National. Nonprofit competition, the performing arts, the American Prize in Opera Performance. It's right. the name of the, I guess, competition or a prestige, right? Probably. The American yeah. Prize. Sure. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. There's a whole litany of categories from wind ensembles to symphonic bands to vocalists to opera companies and productions that apply for this prize every year. So the American Prize winner. Uh, in opera performance. First place. Uh, for a professional first, company. Yeah, for 2018-19 season was Chicago Fringe Opera, uh, artistic director George Cedarquist for Ross Crean's The Great God Pan. Rosha Crean. Now it's Rosha, Rosha Crean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sorry. I, it's I, Oscar. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, there was a name change there at some point. Okay. So I think the CD is still under Ross, right? That is, uh, that is yeah, it's on, yeah, it's Ross Crean on... Yeah. Um, Spotify. But yeah, congratulations, but yeah, George. Chicago Fringe directed by George Cedar. Yay! Well, is there a cash <laughs> prize for that, George? There, there is a cash prize. Uh, and, what is it? And as Matt, that's between me and my lawyer. And between, <laughs> as as Matt says, of course, Tob- Tobias Wright, <laughs> Tobias Wrightman in the leading male role. I was yeah. in that what? show. Yeah. yeah oh, so this is totally. It was his profile picture for quite a while. <laughs> 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 so this is totally fixed. I can't. Yeah. I can't wait for us to win uh, a, a <laughs> podcasting award uh, for everyone except <laughs> for least George listenable. It's, possi- <laughs> it's possible. Speaking of unlistenable. <laughs> speaking of unlistenable or perhaps unreadable, let's talk a little bit about slip disc. This is the funniest I story I've, I've I heard in my life. I just want to get Oscar's blood pressure up on this one. <laughs> so if, if you don't know, uh, slip disc is a website which is basically just like opera gossip. Oh, it's the dregs. The dregs. <laughs> and it's yeah. not just opera. It's, it's classical music. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Uh, and, uh, this Their articles aren't articles. No. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like a person... And their comments... Say, go ahead, sorry. I won't interrupt you anymore. <laughs> it's a disaster of a site. Occasionally they do, you know, hear some things that end up being true, but most of the time it's wildly inaccurate. Uh, and it's very fun to uh, read through uh, but the, if you're not Oliver Kamaja. Listen, I don't oh, often God. read my... Now we're going to make ourselves targets from... No. I know. I'm yeah, so excited. No, no, yeah, we, you should, we should mention that, that it is run... The guy who runs it, Norman Lebrecht, is a serious opera scholar, like wrote... You know, wrote, wrote a very fine biography of Mahler. He wrote a, a, a book more than 20 years ago called... Uh, um, Again, I, I can't. Oh, uh, it's called the Maestro Myth about conductors and like how they just have too much power in the, in the industry. I'm sure you love that. Anthony. No, actually, I did. I thought it was. I thought it was. It's wonderful. He, he says like a lot of conducting is BS, and I mean, he 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 is a serious guy. I I don't know why. But even some, even in some of his books, he has a penchant for like gossip. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think that there's. He's very dramatic. Yeah, I I I don't want to you know go against you know because I, I think there is some 
interest, certainly interest, and sometimes historic <laughs> factual accuracy. Why, to no, be what I think we should say is that whenever we have something from slipped discs, we it always is, fact check it from a different absolutely. source before we ever mention it. On the show. This is journalistic this integrity. Except in this case, because it's just so entertaining. It's, about, it's a little inside baseball, slip disc reporting about slip disc. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so. why I put that's why I put it in there. But I mean, you know, like, everybody reads it. That's the other thing. Everyone goes, "Oh, slip disc is just terrible." Ter-. And then, of course, so yeah, exactly. Look, I don't read my phone often when I'm sitting in the john, but when I do, I make sure it's <laughs> slip disc. I do think it's very funny because Oliver, it, you look so sad. I'm just I'm thinking of George now sitting on the toilet and his his phone <laughs> falling in the toilet. While while he's reading flip discs. Are you trying to say that you don't look at your t- phone on the toilet? Like, no, I'm, escalated I look at it everywhere else except the toilet. So. <laughs> Only Oscar does that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I just think this is so so great and how it's how it's like, it's entirely plausible that an opera company would just block slipped disc. But it's also very funny that. But the, the way thought he, that he words would. it, like it's it's means imminent demise. Imminent. <laughs> Democracy is falling. They're rearranging the deck chairs on <laughs> this the is Usually a sign of panic. <laughs> He's like, I've seen this before. <laughs> I've seen this opera before. <laughs> when my website gets blocked, I, you I, know. I do want to see. Um, I do want to see an opera based on just this article from Slip Disc, where like literally just things are on fire. It's like the end of Goethe Demerung. There's people just. <laughs> on funeral pyres there's blocking of websites you know you you can't type you, you can't type in anything beyond slipped it's great i mean it's hype it, it makes no sense that eno would would do this they don't want leaks right because nobody <laughs> in eno has phones <laughs> well uh I, I think we can say that uh when we come back in a couple weeks uh and when Eno is inevitably lying in ruins, we can Smoldering. issue an apology to <laughs> Slip Disc. Okay, uh, before we change the topic, I just have a bone to pick. And it's not about Oscar, because... <laughs> it, but it's about <laughs> Slip Disc. No, there have been worse Oof. offenses. Um, so, most people know, if they listen to the whole show, that at the end, George reads the credit that I'm the creative consultant of Opera Box Score. Hmm. And uh, what... They don't. Are you quitting right now? I might actually. <laughs> what what the audience doesn't know is that I always have like counsel or advice about how the show should go and like what things should should or should not be included. And every effing week, I ask you guys <laughs> to check Today Classical, which is a, a blog <laughs> on Facebook for classical music facts for the day, I, and I you never do. What the, what the hell? Wait, so you're saying this is a this is a, a nicer alternative than to slip disc? No, I'm just I'm just saying that on, like I'm we, looking it up. We Hurry. have this little segment, the two minute drill, where we always talk about on this day, blah. And clearly, neither George or Weston, who also produces this show, I, I, have ever looked at it. I, so. I, I I liked the page after the last note last week. I can prove it. It's right here. Okay. So whose birthday is today besides uh, Alzira being uh, a first uh, premiere? Uh, so. uh, who doesn't love Alzira, first of all? <laughs> Seriously. Plus, let us forget that you're sitting in studio, too, with, with Cummings and Tobias. So it's okay, like, so for those you, you who can are, also make them do the heavy it's, lifting. It's, I'm doing it. It's Huguette Turongo's birthday. Today, in uh, uh, Hans Werner Hens's opera, Lupapa at the Salzburg <laughs> Festival in Austria. There you go, Oliver. Okay. Mike drops. Bang. Also, right. the death of John, John Cage. John Cage. Oh, so sad. Which is interesting and topical based on his. Aren't all of his letters and but documents housed at Northwestern? Typically, as per Oliver's guidelines, we typically don't celebrate death anniversaries true. on oh, this that's show. True. That's so, true. sorry. I, mean, you know, Shoot. I was just so shocked. When Gentlemen, I saw the first hour is in Woo! the. We have to books. do a good call. God, a good a God call. We're getting to it right now. <laughs> good call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Well, typically, this is when we would be wrapping up the entire show. But here on our three-hour epic, we're just getting going. So if you do have a good call or a bad call, gentlemen, I've got a call. I I don't know if it's good or bad. Pick a side. Here's what I'm going to do. Just say good or bad. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it up to Toby and Matt. Toby and Matt, are you still friends? Forever and always. I, I'm not willing to make that commitment. <laughs> I'll call that a good call. But that's about my, as my best as I can hope My children will call for. him Uncle Matt. Like, it does, like <laughs> yes, we're still friends. I've got kind of a weird call, which is that this week I listened to the new release of uh, Yannick Nézé-Séguin's, um, the, the completion of his Mozart cycle, and it was de- it's Magic Flute, and it, it, it has Rolando Villazón as Papageno. Which I rolled my huh. eyes at about three times That's when hot. I read it. Like, first of all, at least he's not singing Tamino. But uh, <laughs> it's it's not bad. Huh. It, I was really? surprised. It's really not bad. Huh. 
He's a, Dang, that's interesting. He's a great artist. Yeah. Um, my good call is for all of you to check out Anthony Barese's YouTube page. Uh, there's lots of fun stuff on there, but <laughs> something that's sort of newish uh, that he's doing is a ripoff of comedians in cars getting coffee uh, called Conductors in Carts with a K getting cookies. So just look up Conductors, Carts, and Cookies uh, in a search engine. It'll probably pop up. Uh, but that's something fun if you want to nerd out with Anthony Barese. Thanks, everybody, for that. It's uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about Jane Glover. That was what about Anthony's good call? Well, I was just going to get in there quickly. Uh, how cool that Jane Glover had that contract renewed and She's that she has got such a run. What a phenomenal artist, in addition being a fabulous woman leading a great ensemble. <laughs> That's it for this hour's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUER are Henry Moskal and Somal Songvi. Our announcers, Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, our guest co-host conductor, Anthony Bereze, and our interview guest, Patricia Reset. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while reducing a Wagner piece to 45 minutes. For our live audience, stand by for hour two of our three-hour epic. If you're listening to our podcast re-release for hour two, well, you're just going to have to wait till next week. This is WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.